Over the past six months, I've focused on millennials and Gen Zers in the workplace in my part-time employment at Penn United Technologies. For those who might not be aware of what I mean when I talk about millennials and Gen Zers, uh, millennials are born between 1981 and 1996, and Gen Zers were born between 1997 and 2012. What that means is millennials aren't as young as most people think they are. They're actually right now 25 to 40, and the Gen Zers are 9 to 24. The reason that's important for the workplace is already millennials are the largest group of people in the American workforce. And that's only going to continue as baby boomers, who are now 57 to 75, retire, and Generation Xers, who are now 41 to 56, also mature and retire. So what does that have to do with God, the Bible, and today's message? Everything. Because our message is titled, Created for Work. It's Labor Day weekend, and ordinarily on Labor Day weekend, we have a message about work. That might be a little ironic, given that most of us get an extra day off during Labor Day weekend from our work, but over the years, people have told me that they see work as a curse that God put on Adam when he and Eve sinned. Now, the truth is, misery in our work is part of the curse, but God created us for work. We can see that when we turn to the first two chapters in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. There we find that human beings were unblemished by sin or its impact, and work was fun. So let's turn to Genesis 1, 26 to 31 and see God's original intention for human beings when it comes to work. Before we do that, let's look at today's take-home point. And if you're new with us today, never watched before, what the take-home point is, is the one point I'm going to make from Scripture that we want to take home and live out in our week ahead. So here it is. Work isn't a punishment for sin, but a blessing that God gave at creation. So I've always liked to work. I really have. Ever since I was young, I've always liked to work. So knowing that God's work is a blessing is really sort of makes it even better. Now, if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, you're a pastor. I mean, you don't really work. I get it. I mean, I do. I I don't do much manual labor as part of my daily work as a pastor. And some would say that pastors don't really contribute a lot to the economy. But here's the thing. I haven't always been a pastor. And even uh, now, I do get to spend a little bit of time out there in the real world through my work at Penn United. The point is, I liked working when I was a school teacher. I liked working when I was a carpenter. And I even liked working when I was a gas station attendant at Will's Shell Station in Princeton Junction, New Jersey, when I was in seminary. From the time I started working, I've seen it as part of God's calling in my life. And being a pastor has just been one more part of that calling. In his book, God at Work, Gene Veith Jr. uses the term vocation. And he says it comes from the Latin word for calling. The scripture is full of passages that describe how we have been called to faith through the gospel. The doctrine of vocation is thoroughly biblical. So not only are we called uh, to faith in Jesus Christ, but also we are called to work as a response to that good news of salvation in our lives. Veith points out that we're saved by grace through faith, and that was really emphasized during the Protestant Reformation. In fact, what the Protestant Reformation said was, we are saved by grace alone through the blood of Jesus, nothing else, none of our works matter. And that's true, because our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. But after we're saved, We are saved so that we can do the good works that God has planned for us. Having 
worked our way through the letter to the Galatians all summer, we're well aware that we don't want to fall back into slavery to works of any kind, not slavery to the law or or to thinking that what we do really matters because it's the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that brought us freedom, that brought us salvation. So we're set free by Jesus, but but Veith points out something really important about our calling, about our vocation or our work. After we're saved by Jesus, he says, the purpose of vocation is to love and serve our neighbor. After we're saved, the purpose of our vocation is to love and serve one's neighbor. Jesus saves us, and then we're to go about the rest of our lives loving God and loving and serving each other. So we're going to focus on the work for which God created us in a moment, but let's take a quick look at a couple of statements that the Apostle Paul made in his letter to the Ephesians that show us this connection between God's grace in our lives and the work that we do. So here it is. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God alone gets the credit for our salvation because it was Jesus' death on the cross alone that saved us. But after we're saved, we are God's workmanship. That's the word that we find in the translation we just read, the ESV. He created us for good works. So we weren't just created to do work. We were created to do good works. God calls us to walk or live, that's what the word walk means when we use it in the Bible ordinarily, to live in good works because we are God's creation. So our vocation, our work is to love and serve each other. Our work is to make each other's lives better. But Veith points out something, we we all have four vocations or four different callings, not just one. The four callings are our work, our family, our citizenship, and our church. So by that, he means that each of us has a work to do which changes throughout the various course of our lives. When we are young, our primary work probably is being a student. Each of us also has a family calling. When we're young, we're called to be children, and that means we're supposed to serve our parents. Then as we grow, we might get married, and if we're married, we serve our husband or our wife, and then we might have children, so we serve our children. Not all of us are going to get married, not all of us are going to have children, but we are all or all have been children, and so there's that vocation as well. And then as citizens of whatever nation that we are born into, we are called to honor and respect authority, we're, we're called to act justly and to do justice. And then as members of a local church, each of us has a special calling to fulfill. God gives us spiritual gifts and special abilities that we can use and we can develop to serve him and to serve each other. So in all of our vocations or our callings, our work is vital. No one can do the work that you were created to do and no one can do the work that I was created to do. That's why God created you and me. As the Apostle Paul said, we are his workmanship or as one translation I love says this, we are God's masterpieces. Anytime we think work is a curse, let's stop for a moment to consider our four vocations or our callings that God has given us and then how living them out not only fulfills our individual purpose for creation, but also our corporate calling from God in the world. So let's turn to Genesis 1.26 where we're going to see God creating human beings and calling us to work. Before we do that, let's pray together. 
Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your goodness and for your love. I thank you that you have created us out of love and that you have called us to work for our good and for the good of those around us and so that you will be glorified. And today as we turn to this important topic of work, I pray God that your Holy Spirit will open our minds and our hearts, our spirits, our souls and our lives that we might not only hear your word but apply it in our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and we read this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I underlined the word reign in that reading because it tells us what our original work was. We were to rule with God. He made us in his own image, which means that in some way we reflect the God of the universe in our lives. Now that's incredible, but that's a message for another day. If you look at the work that God gave us to do and you take it literally, it might seem that we were nothing more than zookeepers, right? I mean, after all, he said that our subjects, as we ruled with him, were going to be what? Fish, birds, livestock, wild and scurrying animals. More helpful would be to see that our first vocation was as stewards or as managers of God's creation. Stewardship is always a focus, an important focus in a healthy church because God created us to be stewards or managers. God continued with his instructions. It says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. So God blessed the man and the woman. What does that mean? It means that God was with them. Every single day, God came and spoke with a man and woman and, and that relationship was the greatest blessing of all. I mean, we sometimes think of blessings as what God gives us, but the greatest blessing we can have is to be in relationship with the living God. So he told the man that they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. That means they were supposed to have a lot of children, right? I mean, after all, if they only had two children, that wouldn't be multiplying. They were supposed to have many children. Now, I know sometimes at this point, people start to say, wait a minute, Adam and Eve had, had some sons, Cain and Seth, I mean, Abel got killed. So where did Cain and Seth get their wives? Well, answer's simple. They're sisters. And we go, whoa, that's gross. They married their sisters? And the reason we say that is because we live in a fallen world. In that fallen world, even our genetics have been impacted by sin. Disease and weakness are passed on through family lines. That would not have been the case had sin never entered the world. So if you notice that Adam and Eve were instructed to be vegetarians, good for you. That's, an, that's being observant. Before the fall, meat wasn't on the menu. God put it on the menu after Noah and his family survived the, the flood. That's also a message for another day. So let's get to the message for today. Then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. So God looked at all the work that he had done, and he felt the satisfaction not only of a job done well, but of a job done perfectly. 
We don't know if God broke a sweat when he was doing all the creative work that he was doing of the universe and all that it contained. We, we don't know whether um, it was difficult or particularly hard for God to do. But what we do know is this. When he was done, he sat back and he looked around and he said, wow, that is a good job. So now what happens after Genesis 1 is we turn to Genesis 2, and it's really interesting because it seems like Genesis 2 offers us another creation account. Its details are so different than Genesis 1. Biblical scholars and literary critics and philosophers and even atheists have all weighed in on these differences. I think one of the most helpful ways for us to see it is this. Genesis 1 is what we might call the jet plane view. You know, 35,000 feet above the the earth. If you've ever been, you ever looked out the window, you can see the ground, you can see mountains, you can see lakes, but you can't really see them very well. They're sort of far away. That's what the Genesis 1 look at creation is. It's It's a long distance view. But Genesis 2, it's sort of like the bus ride. You know, you're going along and you can stop and you can go out and you can see that greatest, biggest ball of yarn in the world and all the different things they stop at when you're on a tour, right? Because it's an up-close poetic view of creation. So it's very different. Anyway, in Genesis 2, verse 15, we read this about why we were created. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So God had created a garden, the Garden of Eden, we call it. Then God created the man, and we call him Adam. That's because the Hebrew word for Adam means son of the red earth. Son of the red earth. Genesis 2 tells us that God made him Adam from the dust of the ground, so we see how he got his name. Anyway, after creating Adam and putting him in the garden... God gave him a job and a rule. One job, one rule. The job was to tend the garden. Talk more about that in a moment. Notice something similar about Genesis 1 and 2. In both Genesis 1 and 2, our primary calling or work is stewardship. In Genesis 1, the man and woman, what were they supposed to do? Take care of the animals. In Genesis 2, what is the man who's only... The man is only here at the moment. What's he supposed to do? He's supposed to take care of the garden. Now, in Genesis 1, God created the garden or all the plants before he created the animals. So the, the order is similar. The, 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 the basic point is the same. God gave a creation for us to take care of. That's our work. And the interesting thing is God also gave the man a rule. It's a weird rule if you think about it. He can eat anything he wants to. But the only thing is, he can't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden. Now, the penalty for disobeying that rule is death. It seems like a pretty extreme rule. I mean, it's a pretty extreme consequence for breaking the rule, right? But God is the one who established the boundaries, the borders, the, the, the order of things. And he knew the extreme consequence that would come to Adam if he broke the rule. And that's why the penalty was so great. Now you might ask, why did God put something in the world that wasn't permitted? That's also a question for another day. Let's get back to this point about work and why we were created. Man was created, Adam was created to do what? Tend the garden. Now let's think about that for a minute. There's a garden and there are no weeds, there are no rocks, and God provides the water. (laughs) It sounds like Adam's original work was enjoyable, doesn't it? Adam's original job must have been a piece of cake. 
And God was with Adam. And, and as we find in Genesis 3, every day God gathered with Adam and Eve. They had a conversation about how their day had gone. So there was a perfect world with easy work and a perfect relationship with God. It was incredible. But here's the thing. Didn't stay that way for long. From all appearances, Adam was living the dream, as we say. But something was missing. We read about it in Genesis 2, 18 to 20. It says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. Adam was alone. He had no companionship. In Genesis 1, in that count of creation, all the animals were created before Adam, and then Eve was created. So Adam and Eve were created together. So in Genesis 1, all the animals were there, and Adam and Eve were there. In Genesis 2, it's Adam first, and then the animals come, and there's still no Eve at this point, right? So which one's right? Both of them. As we said, 35,000 foot view, the bus ride view. Both views are, are real and true. It's just that they're a different perspective. So Adam is no longer alone because there's all these animals. But the reality is there's no helper suitable for him. The thing is, human beings need other human beings. God designed it that way. Whether we're reading Genesis 1 or reading Genesis 2, by the end of the chapter, God has created two human beings and they're in a relationship with him and with each other that shows us that we were created for community. And why? How did God even know that it wasn't good to be alone? Because God has never been alone. Did you ever think about that? God, we say, is a triune God. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because God has always been in community, he knew it wasn't good for the man to be alone. Now, some people will get upset when they read that there was no suitable helper who was just right for Adam because helper seems to be a subservient role. But actually, in the original Hebrew in which it was written, it really means completer more than just a helper. So a very important component was missing from life. God knew it. Adam knew it, and so God did something about it. The point is, one person can represent humanity. One person can represent humanity, but it takes more than one person to reflect the fullness of God's image. That's why we needed to get the woman in the picture. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, didn't Jesus fully reflect, reflect the image of God, and he's just one person? That's true. He is just one person, but he is also fully God. So let's move on to see what happens next. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took one of the ribs, uh, man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. Adam knew immediately that the woman was like him, but not exactly like him. That's why he said, I am Ish, that's the Hebrew word for man, and she is Isha. Sort of like we have man and woman. Very similar, but different. The two are similar and different. Maybe it's like how God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, similar, but different. In any case, we see our, our vocation when it comes to family in verses 24 and 25. 
It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Adam and Eve had no father and mother, right? God created them. But it says a man will leave his father and mother. We can assume a woman would leave her father and mother, and the two would become one flesh. They would become husband and wife. That is a powerful image of how God planned for creation to, well, for the human creation to multiply so they could rule over and do their job of tending the garden as they expanded in numbers. And it's so much the case that that's the way God intended it, that before the fall, Adam and Eve um, looked at each other. They were totally naked, but there was no shame because there was no sin in the world. So they loved each other. They cared about each other. In their vocation, they tended, for the, they tended the garden together. They loved each other together. Their family vocation was sound. They were certainly good citizens of the kingdom of God because they were in that daily relationship with God. And there was no church yet, but you might say they were the church because they were the man and woman who were under the reign and realm of God. So that was the plan, that they would work together as one, that they would be together and multiply the human race, that they would live as faithful citizens of God's kingdom, and that they would represent him on the earth. It was perfect. Adam and Eve were created for work in the garden and for life together, but we know it didn't remain that way for long. But here's the thing we have to remember. Adam and Eve rejected God's plan, but God's plan has never changed. We need to remember that. Adam and Eve sinned. Sin came into the world. It changed everything. In fact, work is hard now because Adam and Eve sinned, right? I mean, the garden now produces weeds. There are stones and rocks. It's not easy to be a gardener. It's really not easy to do any kind of work these days. Families are difficult because the man and woman can be at each other. It seems like division is easier than working together. When it comes to nations, we know how hard it is for people, citizens of any nation, to agree about just about anything these days and to come together. And even in the church, it can be difficult for us to love and serve each other as we were created to do. But when we work as, the Lord, as to the Lord in each area of our vocations, God is glorified and we find enjoyment. Much is said these days about work-life balance, especially among millennials and Gen Zers. That's the big deal. We want work-life balance. Now here, what is that? Work-life balance refers to the level of prioritization between personal and professional activities in an individual's life and the level to which activities related to their job are present at home. That definition comes from a Forbes magazine article written by Alan Cole. So the challenge is, and this is what you need to know, the challenge is work-life balance is a myth. There's no such thing. Actually, in the life that we live in a fallen world, balance itself is a myth. When people say, I just need to live a balanced life, it, it can't happen. And actually, I would contend nobody really wants a balanced life if it means there's a, an equal amount of work and an equal amount of life, whatever that means. I mean, life outside of work. There's 168 hours in a week, right? So that means if we had work-life balance, there would be 84 hours at work and 84 hours doing whatever else life means. I don't know anybody who really, I mean, there are people who work 84 hours. I've actually worked 84 hours in a week in the past, but it's not something that we're called to do. So we don't want a life 
that's balanced in, in work and life. But here's what we need to remember. God created us for work. I've said that several times. But let's underline that for a moment. God created us for work. He calls us to these four vocations. To that work, whatever it might be. In my case, I'm a pastor most of the time. Um, and, and he created us for family. He created us for citizenship and in a nation and for church. And we will, when we live those vocations to his glory and to love and serve one another, we won't worry about work-life balance because we're going to be living as God's masterpieces and there's nothing more fulfilling than that. Please, you know, let's walk away with that remembrance that when I go to work, I'm doing what God created me to do. And if I'm not, then I need to get new work, right? When I'm in relationship with my family, God definitely created me for that. When I am a citizen of the United States of America, I'm to live that out as a citizen of the kingdom of God first. And even in the church, and especially in the church, when we love each other as Jesus loved us first, then our work is, is amazingly joyful and productive. So if you want to live that way, Here's the simple next step for the week ahead. I will work with the Lord as my boss this week. Adam and Eve forgot who their boss was. The consequences of that have been devastating ever since. And when we forget who our boss is, the consequences are still devastating. When we show up at work and we think somebody other than God is our boss, then we've already got it wrong. When we go into our family relationships and we forget that Jesus is at the center We've already got it wrong. When we live as a citizen of any nation on the earth and we put that above our commitment and relationship in the kingdom of God, then it's, that kind of work is never going to be as joyful as God intends it to be. And finally, when we live with each other in the church of Jesus Christ, when we do that and remember that we were created to love and serve each other, it's going to be joyful. When we forget it's going to be hard. So God is glorified and others are loved and served when we live as we were created to live by working for the Lord. So if we want the freedom that following our vocations, our callings as human beings can give us, it starts with being set free from sin and death. Adam and Eve introduced the misery into all four areas of our vocation when they introduce sin into the world. And so we need to be forgiven of our sins, cleansed of our sins, and start to live a new kind of life. If you've never done that before, you can do it through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago to set us free from sin and death, to give us the opportunity to be restored to relationship so that we can be those masterpieces that God created us to be before the foundation of the universe. If that's never happened in your life, it's as simple, we say here at New Life, not easy, but simple as A, B, C. A is admit. We admit that we're sinners. Just like Adam and Eve, we turned away from God, we rejected his rules, and we have paid the consequence. B, we believe that Jesus came to the earth and is Lord, which means master, and Savior, which means rescuer from sin and death in our lives, for us personally. And then C, we confess to God those sins and we confess to others that Jesus is now Lord. We're under new ownership. We have a new boss. Jesus is now the boss in our lives. So if you're ready to do that right now, I'm, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Ordinarily, I'd give you a little more time to reflect on that, but we're going to do something in a moment that only those who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord 
really find reasonable. It really only makes sense when we do. It's called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. So before that, if you would like Jesus to be Savior and Lord in your life right now, would you pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you love me, that you created all of us to be in relationship with you and for good works. I admit, God, that I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I haven't done the things you wanted me to do. And I believe that Jesus is Lord, Master in my life and in all of life, that he has saved me and and anyone who will accept this salvation from from sin and death. And I confess my sins to you, God, and, and I am willing to stand up in front of anybody and say that Jesus is now my boss, my master. Thank you, God, for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.